0: Greetings everybody, Elen Silas Lumen I am Loremaster Istiandur and I am honored to be representing the Rangers of the West and to join you here in this lovely lore hall. Tonight is our kin's second time hosting this event and we are delighted to have Dr. Corey Olson back on Gladden. Rangers, is a, Rangers of the West is a kin with players of sundry experience levels and varied interests in the game. Whether you are new to Gladden, a returning veteran, or even just rolling a new character, we'd be happy to have you join us and add to all our fun. And if you ever see us out and about in a group, please feel welcome to ask to join us just for the event. We are happy to get to know friends and other kids too. I hope you enjoyed tonight's lecture. And I'd like to give a big thank you to Professor Narnian and Signum U for continuing this great series and coming back to Gladden. Almari, Elden. Thank you. Oh, okay, there we go. I was in the wrong place. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys, for having me. Uh, good to be back here on Gladden and see lots of uh, lots of familiar and friendly faces here. Um. Okay, let's see. I let's see. I want to make sure. Not run into more technical difficulties here. No, I think we're I think we're going. Um, sometimes if if uh, if anyone's not hearing the stream right now, uh, often what you need to do is refresh your your screen. I think it's I think it's running, uh, so I think we're good. But uh, hey, everybody, welcome back. Um, so I am delighted to be back again on Gladden, and not only just to be back on Gladden, but of course to be back with you again doing exploring the Lord of the Rings. I was. Um, yeah, uh, you know, of course. I've been away for the last uh, last two weeks. Uh, I've been traveling. With my family first, and then on uh, business uh, out to Indianapolis. So I've been all over the place, south and east and west and all over. So, uh, but I'm back now, glad to be back in the uh, in the place where the internet works and all that kind of thing, uh, and excited to be digging back into Chapter Four with you. Uh, chapter Four, of course, is quite short. Uh, you know, it's like half the length of of Chapter Three. So we're probably not going to spend more than three, four classes in it. I'd think. Uh, But anyway, alright, so... uh, A couple quick things before we get started. First, quick announcement... Uh, tomorrow is uh, is a pretty exciting thing. So we're starting a new Mythgard Academy class. Uh, Mythgard Academy, in case you don't know, is a series that we've been doing now for almost four years, um, where uh, we we have pe- we we people elected by there's a popular election for uh, the books that we study. We read through books together carefully and uh, and discuss them kind of like I'm doing at the Lord of the Rings, a little bit less leisurely than I'm doing at the Lord of the Rings. Uh, sometimes not all that much less, but 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 a bit less. Um, And we, uh, uh, we've been doing, of course, our history of Middle Earth series where we've been going through the entire history of Middle Earth uh, set um, edited by Christopher Tolkien. Uh, We're going to continue that with the treason of Isengard, but that's not what we're starting tomorrow. Tomorrow we're starting a book that we've been waiting for that I've been waiting to talk about for a really long time. Uh, and that is, we're, we're doing uh, The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. It's the first medieval book that has won the Mythgard Academy election. Uh, Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy might not sound like a rollicking good time, uh, but it's a really, really great book and a really important book, what's more, for understanding Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien was deeply influenced by Boethius. Well, okay, all of Western thought is really influenced by Boethius. Um and I think that there will be a lot of points that you'll see, uh, you know, where, where you'll see uh, sort of uh, you'll be reminded of Tolkien as we're uh, going through the Consolation of Philosophy. Um, so I strongly recommend it. Wonderful opportunity uh, to, to dig into this book together. So the Consolation of Philosophy, I'm going to be talking about, I'm going to be use it's, it's, it's it was written in Latin, of course. The turn of the sixth century. Uh, I'm going to be uh, using the, the uh, this uh, the Dover Publications edition, translated by Richard Green. Um, there's also a, public, a, a, a perfectly decent public domain translation available, so you can you can use that as well from uh, Project Gutenberg, uh, which is also on LibriVox. So. Anyway, it's going to be awesome. I'm super excited. So we're starting that tomorrow, Wednesday night, May 10th, 9:30 p.m. Um, you can tune in right here on our Twitch channel. I simulcast it on our Twitch channel, uh, uh, so uh, so you can you can you can do that. It's going to be awesome. So all right, so that's tomorrow night, and tonight we're digging back into chapter four. So uh, like eight years ago when we last had class, we left the Hub, at least you have to acknowledge that we uh, we left our protagonists in a pretty good spot, right? We left Frodo and Sam and Pippin uh, getting rather tipsy on Elflicker uh, sitting under a tree on the edge of the Marish, right? Uh, so they've been having a jolly time for the last three weeks uh, while we've uh, been going about our business, and we're going to pick up with them tonight. Um, what I want to be really looking at is I want to be thinking about the way in which... Uh, so, there are a lot of juxtapositions, I think, in Chapter 4. You know, it's, uh, what, juxtaposition is a really fun word, which I enjoy saying whenever I can. That is, you know, when 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 things are really kind of put next to each other... Um, in a way that makes us really think about both of them differently. Um, The contrast between the encounter with the elves and the encounter with the Black Rider, for instance. The difference in how Frodo thinks about the Black Riders after he has met with the elves and talked to Gildor uh, compared to what he was thinking and how he responded before. And then especially their experience running from the Black Riders through the marish at the beginning of chapter four, which we're gonna look at tonight, and then when they sort of cross the boundary and they enter Bam Frolong, they enter Farmer Maggot's land, and be thinking about that. So uh, anyway, I'm uh, uh, I'm 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 gonna be uh, I'm gonna be really interested to kinda dig into some of these things. I, I, I am I am expecting to get all the way to Farmer Maggot today, so it should be good. Um, okay, so let me. Uh, so our title today of Woodland Phantoms and Mushrooms. One of those contrasts, right? As we as we leave the the scary woods full of scary things behind, and we enter the domesticated land with uh, with, uh, with 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 tasty mushrooms, especially cooked with bacon. Um, I only have one question that I wanted to address today. There were a bunch of really interesting comments and questions uh, on the uh, discussion board, which is again lotro.mythgard.org. Um, but uh, if you uh, if you wanted to check, like in particular, I responded to a couple of them at length. There was some sort of general uh, qu- question about the sort of the general background of uh, of, of Angmar that we were talking about uh, for a little while. But also, um, I was. Um, Uh, I I was engaging with a couple people where we were talking about uh, I I think I gave a little version of my rant about relatability in literature uh, and books being relatable, uh, and why I kind of get annoyed by that. And I was sort of countered by, uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson, which is a pretty good way to counter somebody, uh, but, um, so I was, and, and I'm a big fan of Dr. J, I love Samuel Johnson, um, and so I kind of talked about that a little bit. I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I said in my post, I don't want to get into it in class, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose, like, 45 minutes, but, um, anyway. Yeah, so, uh, Good. Anyhow, so yeah, so we'll we'll um, uh, we'll we'll do that. You can you can look that up, but I'm not going to do that today. The main one that I wanted to focus on here today was the question that Lady shmebulak asked about Sam, the, the sort of the observations you made about Sam and kind of generalizing to Hobbit culture in general, because this was not only an interesting question but uh, actually leads us pretty directly into some of the stuff I want to get to tonight when we especially as we get closer to Farmer Maggot. She says, "In my mind, Sam has always been very thoughtful and a deeper thinker than many would see on the surface." I've only given a part of her uh, uh, of her post. She was talking also about how Sam often is depicted, uh, like for instance in the Bakshi film, especially uh, as you know the sort of bumbling idiot. Which I agree with you; uh, uh, he totally is, and it's absolutely sort of missing the point. Not just because it's making Sam look like a buffoon, which he should not be a buffoon, uh, but. But but I agree with you. It does it does it does an injustice even just to his intelligence. Um, he clearly is a lot. Sm- he is he's not he's not just a bumpkin in that way. I mean he is a bumpkin, uh, but he's not an idiot. Um, anyway, okay. Let me carry on with your. With your uh, with your your post here, usually I think we look at Frodo and or Bilbo as the greater minds of the Shire, with their adventures broadening their scope of mind. Sam, up until this point, hasn't travelled far, but his imagination always lay beyond the borders of his homeland, and it has been fueled by hearing Bilbo's stories and learning his letters. From what I gather with the gaffer's caution of Sam's learning, most uh, uh, of Sam's learning, most hobbits of his social class are not literate either by choice or lack of opportunity. Does hobbitin have, Hobbit have a schoolhouse? I've always wondered. Um, by the way, pause there. I don't think so. Um, I'd be pretty surprised, actually, if Hobbiton had a schoolhouse. Maybe it does. But uh, there's no reference to it. And that would seem to me odd, frankly. Um, One thing that I would say, I don't want to get too, um, I don't want to get too distracted by this subtopic of the, of the, of the question, but it is an interesting one. Um, literacy, the importance of literacy, literacy as a mark of intelligence or even of culture is a post printing press phenomenon. Before the printing press, um, you don't need to be literate to be intelligent or even educated. Um, There were lots of educated people who weren't literate, Um, you know, very, very intelligent. You know, there were lots of people who could, you know, uh, compose and translate from one language to another, but weren't literate. You don't need to be. Um, That's a specialized skill. Um, When when there's no printing press, right— When it's not possible to uh, very widely uh, promulgate and reproduce printing, you know, writing, um, you can get along with that. It's just, it's not a major thing. It was was a much more oral culture, um, even not just in like, you know, the earlier Middle Ages, but even in the later later Middle Ages, for instance, it was still mostly an oral culture. Um, You can be... Uh, You can be artistic, you can be, you know, creative, you can be a poet without being literate necessarily. Um, So it's something that I would, uh, um, uh, it's a misconception, well, it's a misconception when projected backwards, because in our world, right, um, you can't get very far if you're not literate, right? I mean, being illiterate closes a lot of doors to you because there's print everywhere. Right, I mean, you can barely go down the street without, you know, uh, being able to read street signs and things. That's not an issue, right? Um, there was not illiteracy. Illiteracy did not pose any obstacles to daily life. Um, again, as I said, it doesn't even propose that as many obstacles to like a refined intellectual life uh, in the Middle Ages as it does um, in uh, uh, in 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 the modern world. So. Again, I would I would be careful not to sort of color uh, uh, the gaffer's comments. For instance, the gaffer's uh, I, and I agree with you. His clear resistance to learning. His concern that trouble might come of it, right? Because um, again, like, why, why be literate, right? Why, why read? What's the point of reading? What could? What good can reading do you, right? Um, again, think about. There's lots of ways we'd answer that question today, right? But a lot of those ways aren't even really relevant. Again, the answer like to read books, no, that's not really necessary, right? I mean, you only need one person in the household to be able to read the book, and everybody can enjoy the book, right? That's what uh, that's what usually happened. Um, uh, so again, like just because someone's illiterate doesn't mean they're uncultured or not well read, right? You know, they may be very well, very familiar and, and a great lover of stories um, and poetry and the kind of poetry that Sam clearly loves. He would not have had to be literate uh, in order to in order to enjoy. Um, anyway, so I would I would I, it's just it's a general it's a general thing that I sort of general caution that I would that I would issue Um about sort of projecting modern assumptions about literacy and illiteracy backwards. And I think the Shire in this way is more medieval than... People often talk about the Shire being basically Victorian, kind of. But there are some big differences between the Shire and Victorian culture. And in my opinion, the biggest one is the printing press. There's no printing presses in the Shire. Uh, and therefore, it's not primarily a literate culture. Tolkien says that you know, by no means were all hobbits literate. There are some. There is a literate culture in, in in the Shire, right? They do like to write letters to each other. They do they do write books and read books, right? Especially books that lay facts out very clearly and obviously with no contradictions, right? So we know that there is a literate cu- sort of subculture in the Shire, but it's not a, necessarily a dominant culture, and it's clear. Uh, at the social level of the Gamges, it's not only um, it's not only not normal, uh, but it's it's actively strange to be literate. And it it and I, I love the with the way the Gaffer puts it, right? Um, uh, you know th- that he hopes no harm will come of it, right? It's just not saying it's a bad thing. It just there's, it's, it's not clear what good can come of it, but some harm might come of it, right? It could distract, I mean, he could end up, you know, being, becoming all scribal, right? I mean, he could become all bookish, which is not really relevant for a gardener, right? Uh, I mean, more time spent reading means less time doing your proper work, right? Anyway, so I would just be, uh, I would just be cautious about that. So, no, I don't think that Hobbiton generally has a schoolhouse. The, again, the concept of public education in that sense, you know, sort of broad education, not really a thing. Um Okay. I know that this can be a factor in having a more narrow mindset towards the world around you. Yes, but other hobbits in higher social classes who would have access to more schooling, like Bilbo and Frodo, also have the same narrow mindset of the world. At least initially. Yes, I agree with you. Um, it would seem to me that hobbits either have a willful, shallow ignorance, or due to lack of learning, that's all they know. Hobbits who go outside the Shire come back with a broader view and think deeper of the ways and happenings of the world. Uh, I agree. This is a major factor. And this is where we get into the theme that, uh, is, is, is one of the things I really want to be looking at carefully today. Um, in today's passages, especially, as they say, with Farmer Maggot, um, because this is to me one of the major issues, right? It's one of the things that becomes clearer and clearer as we are traveling across the Shire, right? As we like, you know, sort of following along with Sam. It's not that we, especially if we've read The Hobbit before, right? It's not that we have never left, you have never gone more than 20 miles away from Hobbiton. Um, but uh, But, you know, we get to go along with them as sort of this new world is opening up. For Sam, all of it's new, right? He's never even been past, you know, past the past the Woody End before. Um and but even of course for the others, right? Even with, for Frodo and for Pippin, new worlds are opening up to them, right? In their encounter with the Elves, in their encounter with the Black Riders, right? All of a sudden now the the they they can fence themselves in, as Gildor tells them, but they can't forever fence the world out. And the world um, that outer world is coming in. They're encountering it. Most of the Hobbits still oblivious to it, right? Um, they, even people like the gaffer who have met the black riders aren't really encountering the wider world or thinking about it much. Right. Um, but they now are, and they're thinking about it differently. So they already are starting to become broadened. But to me, it's less about education and it's more about what, uh, what Gildar is pointing to, I think in the conversation there, again, they think about, Shutting themselves, you know, shutting the world away. Right. This is their shire. They want to mind their own business and they, you know, they don't want any part of the outside world. Like, you know, we don't need need any big people here. We don't, you know, the dwarves can pass through, I guess. It's fine. But but, you know, we're just kind of doing our own thing and we want to be left alone. Right. That's kind of the or, or even, of course, it's gotten to the point where they're so shut in the hobbits that they almost forget that there is an outside world. Right. They're not even really very interested in it at all. Frodo is the only one, we're told, who's going around seeking news of the outside world, remember, at the beginning of chapter two. Um, and But again, the way that Gildor characterizes this is not as we have put up walls in order to protect ourselves from the outside world. He characterizes it as fencing themselves in, right? They have sheltered themselves, right? They have shut themselves away. They have turned their backs on the outside world and are facing only inward, Towards the Shire, as if the Shire were the entire world, and as a result, they're sheltered, right? They're they're narrow. They do have a narrow mindset of the world. This is why, the, the I mean, it's it, one of the things that I would say that we can see most clearly, right? Hobbits who have been outside the Shire, hobbits who have been traveling. You know, the 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 four travelers when they return at the end of the Return of the King, right? The difference between the cultural difference between the Shire, the, you know, the, the, the Hobbits of Hobbiton, right. And the Hobbits of Buckland really kind of begins to pale compared to the differences between the Shire and Rivendell and Gondor and Rohan and everywhere else they've been to. Right. Um, the world is just a bigger place. They're seeing things in a very different context than they've seen things. Um, you know, then, then like Sam used to see things when all he knew was Hobbiton. And from that point of view, if all you know is Hobbiton, then I mean, yeah, Buckland is way out there. Right. And we'll see the same sort of thing in reverse from Farmer Maggot. Right. Um, to those who don't travel every, you know, anything very far away must be really strange. So again, they have no perspective. Right. Um, the thing that I want you to remember, the passage I want you to remember, which, again, we'll come back to in a bit is when Frodo confessed to Gandalf that he sometimes thought the residents of the Shire too stupid and dull for words, right? And thought that an that an invasion of dragons might be good for them. Remember that? And then he said he didn't feel that way now, right? And then he was glad that the Shire was there safe and comfortable and all that stuff. So that's great. Uh, but I think that the insight um, that he has is still an important one. And I think we're going to come back to that. Uh, We'll see Frodo himself um, kind of confronting, in a sense, that idea in chapter four here today. Um, So uh, there's more that could be said about this stuff, but again, it's, it it is, it's that sheltering. It's that perspective on the world. It's that uh, circumscription of the world, right? Um, That to me makes the real Makes the real difference, and it's the fact that all of the almost almost all of the hobbits in the Shire are like that, right? Their 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 horizons are very narrow, um, and therefore, their view of the world is uh, challenged, right? Is is uh, uh, is 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 not uh, not really broad enough. Um, okay, so let's um, uh wait. oh okay all right all right uh, Ambrosius. A really honest, I'll answer your question, and then we're totally moving on, uh, digging into the text here. This is uh, uh, a friend had asked, how do the immortal elves view literature? Surely they love language and invented the written word, but with their immortality and strong memories, they really don't have the same need to record things that mortals do. No, no, they're not big into books, actually. Elves are not great book writers for exactly that reason. Um, if you have memory, why do you, why do you need books? right? Books are primarily for handing down to people after you die, right? I mean, of course, again, in a printing press world, uh, books are for distributing widely, right? Um, but not in a pre-printing press world, right? In a pre-printing press world, it's not about mass production and the promulgation of knowledge or something like that. In a pre-printing press world, books are about preservation, like, well, let's write stuff down so it doesn't get forgotten. But yeah, the Immortals not so interested in this, uh so yeah, no, the books the 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 it's yes, it's true that you know they did things like invent alphabets and scripts and things like that, but no, they were not much into written literature at all um, yeah, yeah, for exactly that reason, okay, uh let's let's go, let's dig into the text here, so we're back to. The songs this is where we finished last time we I, I sort of tantalized you with a drinking song, and then we had to to stop and take take several weeks off. Um, so let's look at this. Frodo propped his back against the tree trunk and closed his eyes. Sam and Pippin sat near, and they began to hum and then to sing softly. Ho, 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 to the bottle I go, to heal my heart and drown my woe. Rain may fall and wind may blow, and many miles be still to go. But under a tall tree I will lie and let the clouds go sailing by. Okay, first of all, notice the the shape of the song, right? Hobbit meter again, iambic tetrameter, right? Notice how regular it is to heal my heart and drown my woe. That is like perfect iambic tetrameter, right? Um, in fact, the whole thing is really regular. This is not a there's there, there, there's almost no complicated rhythms in this song. Um, the only line that kind of changes things up. There are only really two lines that change things up significantly um, and many miles be still to go has a different rhythm, right? Um, And the first one, ho, 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 right? Where we start off with the three presumably equally stressed hoes, right? Ho, ho, ho to the bottle I go. Um, But once that kind of revs things up, right? Once the rhythm gets, uh, gets, gets, gets going after that, it becomes really, really regular. Uh, it's 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 a very simple rhythm. Not a lot of uh, uh, sort of personality in these lines. Um, uh, I kind of like the fact that the the one place where the rhythm kind of stumbles right is the reference to the many miles be still to go. <laughs> right? I mean, there's a sense, right? Uh, uh, that's what's being avoided in this song. Right? The, the song is. Um, the song is a is is the perfect song for the occasion right because the uh the 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 whole the the content and context of the song fit perfectly they are in fact lying under a tall tree uh with their with their with their elf booze right (laughs) while they should there are in fact many miles still to go and they really should be moving along but um you know they're going to stop for a little heart healing and woe drowning, right? Uh, before they move on. Um, so that there's a, a, that's kind of an, a slightly uncomfortable reminder, right? That there are many miles still to go. Um, but then we we kind of get back into the rhythm, right? But under a tall tree I will lie and let the clouds go sailing by. That's right? sm- much much smoother sailing in those last two lines, right? Uh, than in the in uh, in line four. Um, and yes, Tony Mead, I agree that the other factor of the simplicity of the verse, it's clearly designed to be sung with others, right? One person could sing this once and then everybody could join in the second time, right? It's again, it's not, it's not designed to be complex. There's, there is no complex wordplay, right? You know, there's, there's no complex, uh, uh, rhythms, as I said, um, it's, um, it's very simple. And yes, Milthaliel says it sounds like it'd be easy to remember the words, uh, even when drunk. Yes, it does certainly sound that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, good. Now let's see, what else was I going to say about this? Um, I like the fact thinking of those two middle lines, right? Um, if you, when you think about the sort of the, the shape of it, not thinking of the sound of the lines now, but thinking of the, the, the content of the lines. Uh, when you look at the shape of it, it's, um, it's sort of like three sets of two lines, right? Um, and this of course fits because it's in, it's in rhyming couplets, right? So that sort of works, even though notice the first, uh, it's, but the, the, the rhyme shape is more complicated than... No, I'm digressing. I was going to talk about the content, but hang on. Let's talk about the rhyme for a second. Notice that the rhyme shape is a little more interesting than that, right? At first, it sounds like rhyming couplets, but uh, it's not just rhyming couplets because the first four lines all have the same rhyme. And indeed, it's not just that the first four lines all have the same rhyme, but lines one and four are on the same word even right? Which is a kind of an interesting frame to that first quatrain. So the rhyme would seem to break the lines up into four and two, right? Ho, 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 to the bottle I go, to heal my heart and drown my woe. Rain may fall and wind may blow, and many miles be still to go, but under a tall tree I will lie and let the clouds go sailing by, right? So that the different rhyme when it emerges in those last two lines, right. Indicates like the sort of shift in action right there. Um, but I, as I say, really the content to me goes two lines at a time, right? The first two lines are declaring the intention, right? I'm headed to the bottle, right? And I'll tell you why, right? I got two reasons to heal my heart and to drown my woe, right? There we go to the bottle. Uh, and then the second two lines, right? Lines three and four talk about the circumstances, right? I don't care what happens, right? The rain can fall and the wind can blow, right? So we're talking about external circumstances, right? Things can change around me. Bad stuff can start happening. I don't care, right? There may be many miles still in front of me, right? So bad things might come to me in the present. There, there's, there's still labors and difficulties in the future. Don't care, right? In the present... What's gonna happen or my my you know my my present declaration of my intention it is still declaring what's gonna happen in the immediate future, right under a tall tree, I will lie and let the clouds go sailing by um uh, yeah, yeah, uh so again those 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 three couplets all really kind of seem to speak fairly uh sequentially uh jj48 i agree with you it it does sound awfully cheerful about drowning his woe, right um i agree this isn't exactly um uh this isn't exactly like a major doesn't sound like a major complaint right uh matt it is kind of like a hobbit version of the blues but it's pretty mild blues right you know this isn't like uh you know like one of those songs about like how his wife left him and somebody just ran over his dog right this is you know th- he acknowledges the fact that there's woe in the picture but we don't hear anything about the woe in the picture right all we hear about is the uh the the, the labor or the travel that he may or may not be shirking right <laughs> by uh um by by uh uh, uh availing himself of of uh of the bottle. Yes. Yeah. I agree. So Baron's hand said, it's as bluesy as a Hobbit gets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, that doesn't really seem to be the kind of thing that they, uh, that they, that they do, but I so I it perhaps in Hobbit by Hobbit standards. Um, so, but notice the overall spirit of this, right? I mean, those first two lines could sound kind of ominous, right? I mean, like it's, um, uh, that is to say if um, if presented in a in, in a in a, uh, a certain spirit again that that could it, it could sound like it's time for an intervention right but the spirit of the whole poem certainly sounds um uh, certainly sounds like a uh, um it's, it, it's, it's cheerful, right? The, the, the healing and drowning in the bottle is being done in a, in a more or less, uh, uh, in a, in a, in a, in a, a cheerful, upbeat, friendly fashion, not an actual, like I'm going to drink myself into insensibility in order to, in order to, 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 to drown out my sorrows. Um, but, um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, that is to say, at the end of the day, it's about friendship, community, good spirits among friends. It's the kind of drinking that we're talking about. And here I come back to some of the observations we were making about the, the, uh, the, the, the shape of it, the rhythm of it, the simplicity of it. It's clearly meant to be sung together. And that's what we see, right? Um, they hum and then they sing together. And then they begin to come back around and sing it louder like you do when you've been drinking, right? Um, So that's clearly the sort of the overall atmosphere that we get here, this sort of cheerful obliviousness, this decision to set aside anxiety and, 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 and concern and, uh, and everything else. Right. And just sort of enjoy the moment and all that. Okay. Now look what happens. "'Ho, ho, ho!' they began again louder. "'They stopped short suddenly. "'Frodo sprang to his feet. "'A long-drawn wail came down the wind, "'like the cry of some evil and lonely creature. "'It rose and fell, and ended on a high-piercing note. "'Even as they sat and stood, as if suddenly frozen, "'it was answered by another cry, fainter and further off, "'but no less chilling to the blood. "'There was then a silence, "'broken only by the sound of the wind in the leaves.' Um, something that I think we have to emphasize about this passage that I think is super clear Um, and again I'm not trying to like harsh on the movies or something the Nazgul don't sound anything like they sound in the movies notice the description of the sound of the cry that the Nazgul make again not trying to diss on the Peter Jackson films I love the Nazgul shriek in the films. It's really effective. It's really great. Um, when I was doing on Twitter, I was doing a poll uh, before I left for vacation of what the collective noun uh, for Nazgul should be. Uh, I think we decided on scourge, didn't we? Decide on scourge. Uh, but anyway, um, several people were suggesting a shriek, a shriek of Nazgul, and I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't get into it in Twitter. But uh, but I didn't like that one. And the reason I didn't like that one is because Nazgul don't actually shriek. Uh, it's not a thing they do. Um, they shriek in the films, but they don't shriek. Um, they wail. And notice what we, what information we get about the cry of the Nazgul that we hear. Um, it's a long-drawn wail, right? It It lasts for a long time. This is not just a, it's not just a, a cry, right? Um, there's feeling in it, right? The cry of some evil and lonely creature. It rises and falls, right? It modulates. It's not just a, a a note. It's not a whistle. It's not a shriek. It's not. It's. Um. Um. And yes, Stephanie. Exactly. Stephanie says, "Wail and cry" indicates a voice. That's the thing. That's the important thing. This is not. It's not a shriek. It's not a whistle. Uh, this is a. This is a. This is a voice speaking. Um, and, uh, and it's, and it's communication. There's communication happening here, right? Um, it's, uh, uh, because it's answered by another cry, fainter and further off. Now, the emphasis, the first emphasis here is on the impact that it has on them, right? On the hobbits who hear it. It's chilling to the blood. Um, it, it sounds like the cry of an evil and lonely creature, the evilness of it, right, is, is, is something that strikes them and seems to be connected with the chilling, right? Um, but also lonely, right? It's not only evil, but it's also lonely. Um, it, it it seems to excite, therefore, both sort of apprehension, right? They're creeped out by it. Um, but they also seem to have pity, um, raised by this, right? Um, That's what I get. Uh, Pity is what I hear in the emphasis um, of uh, lonely, right? Um, And let's look at the follow up. And what do you think that was? Pippin asked at last, trying to speak lightly, but quavering a little. It was a bird. It was one that I never heard in the Shire before. It was not bird or beast, said Frodo. It was a call or a signal. There were words in that cry, though I could not catch them but no hobbit has such a voice. No more was said about it. They were all thinking of the riders, but no one spoke of them. They were now reluctant either to stay or go on, but sooner or later they had to get across the open country to the ferry, and it was best to go sooner and in daylight. In a few moments they had shouldered their packs again and were off. Um, Yeah, Dime, when I say pity, I don't mean that they're like, all the poor ringwraiths, right? But if you hear a cry... Right in the in in the wild, and your response is sounds lonely, right? To me, that seems like you know at, at least an echo of something like pity, right? That it's um it's 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 not just fear that they feel. It's not it's sort of acknowledgement of like wow, like I wouldn't want to be <laughs> whoever that was that's crying out there. But there are words in the cry. So okay, so let's let's get try to picture this right frodo can hear words in the cry but it's a long drawn wail and it's rising and falling and ending on a high piercing note that's why i called this i i i i put two slide two songs on this slide um it's a song right i mean it's a long sustained vocalization that has words in it Ie it's a song and <laughs> JJ Forty-eight says maybe this is the Nasco version of the blues. <laughs> maybe it is, right? <laughs> exactly. See JJ now that's a little more bluesy, right? I'm evil and I'm lonely and I'm in the marriage far from home, right? That's a little bit more bluesy, right? I can I can, t- I can totally get into that. Um but um uh yeah, yeah. Um yeah i i i i agree uh, grim dragon says it's a sound that's difficult to imagine almost like trying to imagine a color you've never seen before it invokes emotions uh you've never felt yes yes um i agree but it's um it's definitely it's definitely uh so frodo can tell he he says it's a signal right there's 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 communication going on between uh between the two of them so in other words, we get the communal song. Right. Among the hobbits, this happy, cheerful, uh, sort of carpe diem drinking song that they were just singing. And then we get the evil, lonely, chilling cry, one, uh, a, a signal sent from one to the other. This other song. Bad guys sing. Right. And when bad guys sing, it's bad news often. Right I mean, ask Finrod Felagund right about that, who lost a singing competition with Sauron um back in the first age um but um anyway, yeah, yeah, um so there's um there's there's i think a a really interesting co- so i this is this is the first of those juxtapositions that I was talking about, right this beautiful, little, happy, very Hobbit-like moment, right? Sitting under a tree, you know, in high spirits, in more than one sense, right? And, uh, uh, or, you know, I guess in good spirits in more than one sense. And, uh, uh, And then the evil, lonely cry of the Nazgul singing back and forth to each other. Um, yeah, Matt, it sounds like that to me too. Matt says it almost, uh, uh, almost seems to describe something like a medieval religious chant. Yes. The, 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 the rising and the falling and the ending on a high note. Yeah. 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 I, I, I agree. It sounds like it sounds, uh, that way, uh, uh, to me too. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we're not going to get, um we're We're not gonna get any singing competitions with the the ring wraiths exactly right we'll get some some conflicts of will right but uh not directly conflicts of of song right so okay um but uh keep this passage in mind, right and it's one of the reasons I really wanted to emphasize this and why I think this juxtaposition is so interesting. We're not gonna come back to the drinking song very often. Right. We're not going to allude to it over the rest of the story, but we are going to allude to this this sound that they hear, the Nazgul cry that they hear. Almost every time the Nazgul are heard crying in the distance, we hear the wail of the Nazgul in the distance, the narrator is going to remind us of this moment, just like they heard in the Marish Right, um, back before there will be a you know, a number of references. If you have uh, the Lord of the Rings on ebook, uh, do a do a search for the word Marish, right, and you'll find it. Right, the uh, the the number of times that that keeps getting alluded to, all the way through into the Return of the King, we're still going to be recalling the first time. You know, it's it's almost like a one of those flashbulb memories, right? Whenever they hear the Nazgul, it's like you remember where you were the first time you heard it, right? That's the 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 the, the way that the narrator refers back to it reminds me Of that, right? They'll always remember this moment. This is a this is a, a serious and, and and important moment for them, and I think it's no coincidence that it does come after their encounter with the elves, right? You'd think that for Frodo seeing the Black Rider like get off his horse and creeping crawling across the ground, snuffling and sniffing towards him in the dark would have been like the most creepy moment with the the ring wraiths but no after the conversation with gildor and now he hears this song and and uh uh you know this cry with words in it this you know evil lonely thing he um uh he he that's that's the this seems to be the thing that really kind of crystallizes his experience with the ring wraiths um okay so look as a bonus we already talked about this, too. Um, and I love the reference, but no hobbit has such a voice, right? Um, that was definitely not a hobbit. Notice how that, you know, and I love Pippin's attempt at lightheartedness, right? Um, what do you think that was, right? Um, bird, you think? You Th- think that was a bird? Um, he's he's trying for hobbit lightheartedness, right? That's what they do. When things are spooky, they, uh, you know, they make jokes. They, they, um... Uh, they try to, they try to keep it light. Frodo can't be light about this, right? Um, he, but notice how he even, he doesn't name the black riders, right? Um, he points to them pretty clearly, but he doesn't say it, right? They don't say it. They're all thinking it, but nobody speaks of it. Um, and the result, they're reluctant either to stay or go on. Mithaliel, remember the point that you made about Gildor's words last time? Remember at the beginning of class we talked about Mithaliel's point about how she had always been frustrated with Gildor for not saying anymore and Frodo saying, I can't imagine what would be more terrifying than your hints and warnings, right? Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I can't imagine what information would be more terrifying than your hints and warnings. But uh, I really liked Mothaliel's very interesting point that actually you can kind of see when you look back through the rest of book one, and you can see actually maybe if he'd known more, he wouldn't have been able to do what he was doing. Notice Milthalio, the, the effect setting in right here, right? What is the consequence of this confrontation with the Black Riders, right? Or this sort of, I don't mean confrontation face-to-face, right? But this confrontation of like the reality of the Black Riders is paralysis, Mothaliel, right? Um, they don't want to uh, like if they were to take off running, that would be something, right? That would be panic. That would not be great, but it would be kind of potentially productive if they ran the right way, right? The result is absolute paralysis. Um, They're terrified to stay. They're terrified to go. Uh, the whole world transforms around them. Remember where they were singing under the tree just a minute ago, and now everything is a threat, Right? They're terrified of the woods because the black riders are near. They're terrified of the open country because the black riders could see them. They don't know. uh, They don't know what to do. Um, So, yeah, like if they actually did know more. Right. You know, if if on top of the experience of hearing this cry um, and I I wonder if they're actually affected by the song. Right. Remember how the um, Song of the Elves imprinted itself on their minds. Right, they were able to translate it, even though you know they didn't really know the language. You know, Frodo knows some of the language, but Pippin and Sam don't, right? But they, but it, 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 formed itself in their minds, right? It kind of seems to me that the Song of the Nazgul has kind of formed itself in their minds to some extent as well, right? The, the both the impression, like the evil and loneliness thing, but also uh, their reaction, right? They have been um, enchanted, I think in a sense, right, in a very different way obviously than they were enchanted by the elves. And the result is just terror, right? Dread, exactly. And uh 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 Erstarg, I assume you're you're making an, a reference you're making a reference to the uh uh to the gameplay mechanism in Lotro, the dread mechanism. For those of you who don't play the game, um there's I can show you uh on this uh the, the 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 ring around the mini-map here will sometimes be glowing blue and sometimes be glowing red. Uh, and you can see I, I'm at... My hope is at zero right now. It's I, I feel neither hope nor dread. I love the fact that Lotra... This is one of the most compl- sort of abstract elements of Tolkien's world, and I love the fact that they incorporated that into the gameplay in Lotra. I never expected something like that. Where... Um, like basically, if you are if you're near a Nazgul, for instance, if you're experiencing that kind of that kind of horror, that kind of despair that comes over people when in the presence of the Balrog or in the presence of the Nazgul, uh, then uh, then you're affected by dread and it reduces your it reduces your mirage, It makes you weaker, right? And sometimes it paralyzes you entirely. Um, or if you're like in Lorien or if you're in Rivendell or something, your your hope. Goes up and your 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 hope is higher and you're stronger and uh, I I I love it I just 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 love that effect uh, that they tried to capture that the hope versus dread element uh, in Tolkien's work just, I like totally hats off of all of the game the pure gameplay elements not the characters the storylines or or the the artistic design or the visuals anything like that but the 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 game mechanics in Lotro. The hope and dread thing uh, is the thing that that most impresses me. Um, but uh, anyway, OK, um, so so they're paralyzed, but they, they 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 pull it together and they go off. Now, look at uh, look at what happens. Remember the description of their walking before. Right. Remembered in chapter three. Spent a lot of time walking together in chapter three, spent a lot of time looking at the countryside around, right? Getting descriptions of the countryside around, walking side by side and in step and breaking into walking songs and things like that, right? Um, Look now at their walking and look at the description of the countryside around them now. Before long, the wood came to a sudden end, wide grasslands stretched before them. They now saw that they had, in fact, turned too much to the south. Away over the flats they could glimpse the low hill of Buckleberry across the river, and it was now to their left. Creeping cautiously out from the edge of the trees, they set off across the open as quickly as they could. At first they felt afraid, away from the shelter of the wood. Far back behind them stood the high place where they had breakfasted. Frodo half expected to see the small distant figure of a horseman on the ridge, dark against the sky, but there was no sign of one. The sun escaping from the breaking clouds, as it sank towards the hills they had left, was now shining brightly again. Their fear left them, though they still felt uneasy. But the land became steadily more tame and well-ordered. Soon they came into well-tended fields and meadows. There were hedges and gates and dikes for drainage. Everything seemed quiet and peaceful, just an ordinary corner of the shire. Their spirits rose with every step. The line of the river grew nearer, and the black riders began to seem like phantoms of the woods, now left far behind. Uh, that last sentence, of course, is where I took the title from the class. Notice, again, the contrast here. When we start off here, as I suggested in my subtitle here, this is no Hobbit walking party anymore, right? Not even Pippin is just having a good time larking around the Shire anymore, right? Um, look at their, their Creeping Cautiously— out from the edge of the trees, right? They're looking over their shoulder, thinking about where they breakfasted. He, They look back at... Where did they breakfast? At at Woodhall, right? At the Elf Glade, in the Elf Spot. He looks back at it, right? And instead of th- being like, good times, right? Happy memories, right? I remember the elves. I, we were right there with the elves. No, he looks back at the place where the elves were and expects to see a black rider there, Right? Um, or at least uh, half-expects to see that, right? Um, remember, Gildor said you can fence yourselves in, and earlier on we were emphasizing the significance of the fencing themselves in, right? But you, can, you cannot forever fence it out, fence the wide world out, right? The wide world has invaded the Shire, and they are viewing it now. The whole Shire feels different. Those forests that they're leaving behind were very cheerful forests yesterday, right? Um, there wasn't any problem. Now everything looks different. Even again, looking back at the memory of their time with the elves, now seems different. It's now been in that like imaginatively overtaken by their encounter with the black riders, right? It, the, again, remember Frodo half expecting to see black riders having physically taken the place of the elves, right? Where the elves were looking you know, where they were looking at with the elves, now the Black Rider is going to be spying on them from that spot, right? Um, So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. But then their spirits rise, right? And what is it that makes their spirit rise? The land becoming steadily more tame and well-ordered. They're returning to the normal shire, right? It's hard for them to continue to feel the same way, right? It's one thing to be, like, they were enjoying their Hobbit walking party, and the Hobbit walking party got kind of wrecked by the, you know, the whole Nazgul thing with a bit of a damper on that, right? But it's like coming back to the real world, right? Harder to believe in these, you know, spirits from the outside world, right? These phantoms of the woods. Um, you know, we've left them. We've left them uh, far behind, Right? Um yeah yeah um and you're right Stephanie that we can see that their tendency to be lighthearted and hopeful is still is still emerging right despite the despite the black riders and the fear of the black riders um yeah yeah um yeah mythaleo it is almost like leaving fairy and coming back to the normal mundane world right um i i do think that's part of it mythaleo it's not like Well, surely the Black Riders, I don't think that their their comfort is irrational here. That is, you know, it's not like the Black Riders would surely never dare to follow us to this spot, right? But rather it's like, it's harder to believe in them. Um, And that's what we see in that last line. The Black Riders began to seem like phantoms of the woods, now left far behind. They've not been left. They're not phantoms of the woods, right? They're kind of phantomish, but they're not phantoms of the woods. They're not like, again, like evil local spirits right that that when you go back when you leave the dark you know the dark German forest and the Brothers Grimm and you come back out to, to, to tilled uh, farmland you're now safe right from the dwarves and fairies and giants and ogres and witches that you might find in the forest um, but that's how it feels to them right um, yeah okay oh wait went the wrong way okay now look what happens as they're approaching farmer maggot's house Uh, the mood is rising right their spirits are rising they're feeling more confident and more relaxed and the black riders are starting to feel more and more unreal right we're turning to the returning to the normal wood the normal world and everything's getting nicer and more cheerful and then there's this sudden reversal "'I know these fields and this gate,' Pippin says. "'This is Furlong, Old Farmer Maggot's Land. "'That's his farm away there in the trees.' "'One trouble after another,' said Frodo, "'looking nearly as much alarmed as if Pippin had declared "'the lane was the slot leading to a dragon's den.' "'The others looked at him in surprise.' "'What's wrong with old Maggot?' asked Pippin. "'He's a good friend to all the brandy bucks. "'Of course he's a terror to trespassers, and he keeps ferocious dogs. "'But after all, folks are down here near the border and have to be more on their guard.' "'I know,' said Frodo. "'But all the same,' he added with a shamefaced laugh, "'I'm terrified of him and his dogs. "'I've avoided his farm for years and years. "'He caught me several times trespassing after mushrooms "'when I was a youngster at Brandy Hall.' On the last occasion he beat me, and then he took me and showed me to his dogs. See, lads, he said, next time this young varmint sets foot on my land, you can eat him. Now see him off. They chased me all the way to the ferry. I've never got over the fright, though I dare say the beasts knew their business and would not really have touched me. Um... Again, everything seems to be moving in the positive direction. And then all of a sudden, the central element of that domesticated, tame, mundane, day-to-day agricultural shire that they're passing back into, civilized shire, right, that they're passing back into, um, the central element of that becomes something that raises fear in Frodo. Um, and I love the association there right um looking nearly as much alarmed as if pippin had declared the lane was the slot leading to a dragon's den right <clears throat> farmer maggot is like a dragon that's like the picture frodo has always had in his mind right farmer maggot was his personal ogre like Farmer Maggot was the boogeyman. He was the monster under the bed, right when Frodo was a kid. Um, this is the sort of the image of Farmer Maggot that he left uh, uh, Buckland with. Now, uh, and and of course, you're right. Um, uh, oh, sorry. Who was that? Uh, Yeah, Oakwig is mentioning it, and uh, uh, JJ48 is saying, if, uh, "If you know Frodo, if you think this Farmer Maggot is bad, just be glad you're not meeting the one from The Return of the Shadow." Uh, and it's true. And you know, uh, 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 thinking about that, just to for those of you who didn't do the last uh, Mythgard Academy class with me, and you still can. It's on YouTube. Um, we went through The Return of the Shadow, the, the the earliest drafts of the of the Fellowship of the Ring. Tolkien beginning to find his way and figure out the story of the Lord of the Rings. Fascinating to see when he first gets to farmer maggot he makes farmer maggot really nasty he's not a literal ogre right he's still a hobbit um but he's awful i mean he like is 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 absolutely terrible indeed there's this one like version of the story that he wrote where bilbo you know he, he relates a story where bilbo is traveling with uh, well bingo of course is still his name he's not frodo yet um bilbo's traveling traveling with bingo and and the dog almost kills them and bilbo kills one of farmer maggot's dog with his stick and farmer maggot like tries to kill him and bilbo threatens to come back and challenge him to a duel with swords and i mean it's like it's pretty intense they're like, actually threatening to kill each other um but uh anyway so so yeah it's it's uh Farmer Maggot. What he, he his first thought about Farmer Maggot was that Farmer Maggot really would be uh, this like totally inhospitable ogreish figure. Um, that's not where he ends up with Farmer Maggot, right? And but but to me, remembering that is really interesting. Again, thinking about this this association that Frodo has between Farmer Maggot and dragons, right? Um, and this is one of the. One of those places, uh, uh, Lady Shmebulok, where I want to come back to the comment that you were making about the widening perspective of travel, right, Uh, and the the narrow perspective of most Shire hobbits. We can see this was true, has been true, is still true of Frodo, right. Um, It's no great shock that in Frodo's little world, right, when he's a kid uh, in Buckland, it's no surprise that Farmer Maggot is like the big bad of his world. Right. And that's, that's how he thinks of him. And he still retains that memory even now into his adulthood. He's a little bit ashamed of it, right? He, he, he he's shame faced as he's speaking of it, but he's still uneasy. Right. Um, he still doesn't trust him. He's still nervous. Despite the fact that uh he 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 now has sort of heard enough and and knows enough to suspect maybe maybe, uh, maybe maybe I don't have a real balanced view of farmer maggot right uh based on my my very few interactions uh with him when I was a kid um but um okay so think about the think about the shift there right and remember frodo's own words about how he thought that an invasion of dragons would be good for the Shire. Um, keep that in mind. It's, of course, the one where we see that come most relevant to is going to be Frodo himself. Uh, Through the gate there now appeared a broad, thick set hobbit with a round red face. Hello, hello, and who may you be, and what may you be wanting? he asked. Good afternoon, Mr. Maggot, said Pippin. The farmer looked at him closely. Well, if it isn't Master Pippin, Mr. Peregrine Took, I should say, he cried, changing from a scowl to a grin. It's a long time since I saw you round here. It's lucky for you that I know you. I was just going out to set my dogs on any strangers. There are some funny things going on today. Of course, we do get queer folk wandering in these parts at times. Too near the river, he said, shaking his head. But this fellow was the most outlandish I have ever set eyes on. He won't cross my land without leave a second time, not if I can stop it. What fellow do you mean? asked Pippin. Then you haven't seen him? said the farmer. He went up the lane towards the causeway not a long while back. He was a funny customer and asking funny questions. But perhaps you'll come along inside and we'll pass the news more comfortable. I've a drop of good ale on tap, if you and your friend are willing, Mr. Took. Okay, uh, several things to observe about Farmer Maggot's, um, response here about our our, our first introduction to Farmer Maggot. Um... One thing that I don't want to overlook, notice what a close shave they've had, right? It's easy to miss this. This is one of those things that I didn't notice for years reading this passage. Um, One of the things that we can take from this initial conversation with Farmer Maggot is they barely escaped the Black Rider, right? Notice the significance of his question, then you haven't seen him? He's surprised that they haven't seen him. Why should he be surprised that they haven't seen him? Because you can't wander off the road. The road is a, on a causeway, right? That is to say, it's it's a raised dirt road above marshland, right? So you got marshland, but then you raise a causeway to have the to have the uh, the road. There's nowhere to hide on a causeway, right? If you're on a causeway through a marsh, the only you can do is jump off into the swamp, which they obviously haven't done, right? Because they're not. Totally immersed in swamp water. So uh, that th- this is, this is, um, uh, it's kind of a big deal. He assumes that they will have seen him, right? Because if they came down from the road and he just went up the lane and to the causeway, they had to have crossed, right? Given how close they came, you know, so their paths had to have crossed. Now, of course, it didn't because they came cross country. Right, they came from the other direction over his fields, right, instead of up the causeway, uh, down the causeway from the from the main road, right, towards his lane. Um, so it's very lucky, very lucky that they didn't. Met. So we already see they were right to choose the way that they chose, right? The shortcut caused a delay, yes, but if they hadn't chosen the shortcut, if they hadn't gone across country, they would have run into the black riders. Well, maybe, I guess. There's of course one other possibility. Um they wouldn't have run into the Black Rider. If they'd stayed at the Golden Perch for long enough, right? They'd have missed him. <clears throat> but anyway. Um <laughs> so maybe maybe Pippin's route would have been just as good in the end. Uh but anyhow. Um okay, um uh, other things. Let's see uh um Tony Mead is asking, why is Farmer Maggot such a noteworthy person that all these hobbits from far away know him? Is it because of his large farm or location or what? Both of the last two, I would say. I mean, he's he's a, he's a fairly important—he's a substantial farmer. He's a pretty he, clearly a pretty important guy uh, in the world of the Marish. And, you know, the Marish is just across the river from Brandy Hall. It's clear that there's a lot of coming and goings. I mean, remember, his land is close enough that teenagers— in Brandy Hall, cross the river on the ferry and go to his fields for a lark and to stir up trouble, right, and to poach his mushrooms. Uh, So if you're going to dare your friend to go steal mushrooms from the you know, like obviously it's, you you can see how close and convenient it is, right, to just go across the river and do that right there. Um, So yeah, yeah. So, so we can see that he's nearby. So, therefore, the people of Brandy Hall know him. How does he know Pippin? I don't think this is a a, a, a case necessarily of Pippin over in Tuckborough, right? Growing up and uh, growing up in 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 in, uh, in Tuckborough. I don't think that this is the case of Pippin ha- having heard of Farmer Maggot from there. Right? Everybody knows Farmer Maggot all the way across the Shire. No, Mary knows Farmer Maggot. Right? Because Mary is an important person in Buckland. Farmer Maggot is one of the major people roundabout, so Mary knows Farmer Maggot, and Pippin is friends with Mary and has visited him a lot and been there quite a bit. So he has been introduced to him. You can tell that he's known him for a long time, right? Can, uh, you, can, can you see how, how do we know that uh, that Farmer Maggot has known Pippin for a long time? We, we can see he's known him for many years, right? You see how we can know that? If it isn't Master Pippin, Mister Peregrine Took, I should say. He says, right now. So remember, Master means the 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 word Master is what is the the title that you give to a boy, right? Exactly, Nathaniel. That's a childish name, right? Um, the young master, right, is what somebody in the lower class would call a child who is in the upper class, right? Um, He calls him Master Pippin. He still thinks of him as a kid, right? A teenager, you know, a hobbit lad running around with Mary Brandybuck, right? And then he corrects himself. Mr. Peregrine Took, I should say, right? Yes, a young man in short pants, D-May. Exactly, exactly. Um, So he corrects himself. He's not Master Pippin anymore, right? He is now Mr. Peregrine Took, right? Uh, even though he's not officially come of age. So he's probably actually not Mr. Yet, right? Exactly. Veronica was just reminding us that he's not yet 33. Yeah, he's not come of age yet. Um, So I actually think Veronica, for that reason, I actually think that the Mr. Peregrine Took, I should say, is kind of giving Pippin a hard time, right? Technically, he's not Mr. Peregrine Took yet, right? Uh, He's still Pippin. But, uh... But, you know, this sort of show of respect. That, oh, excuse me. I mean, Mr. Peregrine Took. Right. Um, but it's clear um, from their reaction. <clears throat> he is treating him with respect. That is, even that the, both the master and the mister, right, are ways of Farmer Maggot acknowledging uh, Pippin's class. Right. Notice that Pippin calls him Mr. Maggot. Right. Acknowledging that he's a significant landowner. Right. Um you know, he he's entitled to be called uh, to be called mister. Um, but anyway um uh notice nobody calls Ted Sandyman mister. Nobody calls gaffer Gamji Mr. Gamgee, right? Um uh, remember what um what Bilbo calls uh the gaffer Master him fast. Um. Uh, yeah, Karina. Alfred does call Batman Master Wayne. Yes, absolutely, he does. Because of course, Bruce Wayne is always the young master to Alfred. It happens when you're like 150 or however old Alfred is. Um. But um. But yeah. Anyway. So uh, uh, uh he calls him Master Hemfast, right? Um. He's not a kid, but he is a peasant. He's not Mister. He's not. He's not a landowner. Um. Uh, again, the, the title Mister had a meaning. Right, it wasn't just the generic masculine uh, thing. Right, it 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 meant like you owned land um, to be called to be called Mister. Um, those of you who've been doing the Mythgard Academy with me may remember the moment in Dracula where this came up, where uh, Arthur the the Honorable Arthur Holmwood, Holmwood uh, who became Lord Godalming when his father died, he became a you know a peer, he inherited the title his father um and you may remember again if you read Dracula with me you may remember that moment when Van Helsing says he's having a problem knowing what to call Arthur because Arthur's father's just died but that's an awkward subject and everything and he says I must not call you mister I can't call you Mr. Holmwood because you're a peer now right so I I I, anyway so he um um he he uh uh he 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 doesn't know what to call him, right? But Mr. is not good enough, but he... Anyway. Um, And yes, you're right, um, uh, uh, Tony. The gaffer is also Bilbo's junior, right? The gaffer was the apprentice to Bilbo's original gardener, right? Uh, So it is kind of charming to think that there's a... uh, So, Carita, there you go, right? Bilbo is to Ham Gamgee as Alfred is to Bruce Wayne, right? It's exactly like that. Um... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> okay. Um, good. Now, um, yes, DMA points out that Sam Gamgee is always introduced by his name. Yes, he's always called Sam or Sam Gamgee. He's not called Mr. Gamgee. Um, and, uh, which is exactly, you'll notice the same thing with Ted Sandyman, right? He's always Ted Sandyman, He's never Mr. Sandyman. Um, or his father was not Mr. Sandyman, He was old Sandyman the Miller, right? Same thing. Again, the title means something. Um, but, uh, oh, and, uh, wait, Finn was saying, but Sam also calls Frodo master. Yeah, that's a, that's, there's, a, that's the big, but no, he doesn't call him, uh, master Frodo. He just calls him master, right? If you just call somebody master, you're acknowledged, like you're, he's the master and you're the servant. So you call him master, right? But that, when that word is used as like a title before the name, it's what you call a kid, right? Or somebody junior to you, uh, or somebody sort of, uh, anyway, it's all really complicated, but uh, uh, but there's lots of uh, uh, there's lots of kind of interesting cues that we that we get from this. So so we see they've known each other a long time. They have a they have a, a very friendly relationship, right? We see them picking on each other, right? Uh, uh, um, you know, as uh, especially um, uh, Farmer maggot kind of given kind of Pip and a hard time there. Um, so, okay, what else? What else do we see? We see, um, we see the pluck of Farmer Maggot, right? Another thing that, you know, a thing that Farmer Maggot and Ham Gamgee have in common, right? Telling Black Riders off, right? Um he uh had just determined he was going to set his dogs on on any black riders that came by again right yeah i mean this is just it's kind of a wonderful thing to think about uh farmer maggot doing this right and if that, if i see any more like undead spirits on my land i'm going to set my dogs on them i will you know it's it's awesome right just just you you got to love the cheekiness just like uh you know uh um Ham Gamgee (laughs) slamming his door in the face uh, of of a black rider. Yeah, yeah, pretty awesome. Um, Notice a couple things in Farmer Maggot's perspective here as well. Um, There are some funny things going on today. He says, of course, we do get queer folk wandering in these parts at times, right? Too near the river, he says, shaking his head right? It's interesting that he, it's almost like he's confessing that Ham Gamgee was right, that folk are queer over in Buckland, right? He's like, yeah, things are queer around here. We're too close to the river, right? But of course, he's not acknowledging that, right? They are normal, like the residents of the Marish are not queer, right? It's the people from across the border, because you do get people from across the border, and those people can be pretty darn outlandish, right? Uh, And sometimes they encounter them. So, we see already a way in which the residents of the Marish, because they do encounter the outside world to some extent, right, and occasionally at least, we do see ways in which they already have in a sense a kind of a broader, uh, uh, at least a slightly broader view of things uh, than the Hobbits of Hobbiton do, who are much more thoroughly sheltered, because not so near the border. Um... uh, he won't cross my land without leave a second time. Not if I can stop it. Um, though I do like the, I also like this sort of acknowledgement that he seems to make there. Right. That is, he's not just, he's not just blowing gas. Right. He, 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 he acknowledges there's at least the implicit acknowledgement that he might not be able to stop it. I think. Right. Um, but, uh, but anyway, he won't cross my land without leave a second time is still a fairly confident, uh, a confident thing. <laughs> Oakwig is suggesting that Farmer Maggot's blue song would be titled "Too Near the River." Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, anyway, okay. He's a funny customer, asking funny questions. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, customer, exactly the same word that both uh, Ham Gamji and Farmer Maggot used. Uh, even their dialect is uh, uh, is very is very similar. Um. Okay, um, let's continue to look at Farmer Maggot as representative. This is one thing that I would really like to emphasize here, too. Remember that shift from the wild wood, right? The fairy wood, uh, as we were talking about before. The place where magical, strange, queer, evil bizarre things had been happening right good and evil Strange things have been happening, but they've all been strange in the woods, right? In the woody end of all places, right? I mean, just like a normal part of the Shire, but here it's been transformed by all these other worldly things they've been meeting, right? Uh, as their world is changing, or rather their view of the world that they thought of as the quiet world, their own Shire, which Gildor says isn't your own Shire, and their eyes are being opened to that, right? But anyway, they've left that behind, right? And now they've passed into cultivated, normal, mundane Shire world, um, And in that world, Farmer Maggot is, I think, the possibly the most representative Hobbit that we meet. Um, I mean, Gaffer Gamgee is pretty close too, but uh, there's remember, almost all the Hobbits we know are weird right weird in a good way but they're weird bilbo's weird frodo's weird we're told they're weird uh, you know e- uh, the exceptional is the word that the uh, that the, pr- the preface uses um they're weird even just because they um um just because they are married right as bachelors they're very exceptional most hobbits get married and have a family right most hobbits are not landed gentry living in bag end right most hobbits are farmers living in a family, living in this communal existence and and close to the land, right? That's farmer maggot's life. That's normal. That's much more mainstream Hobbit than any of the Companions, right? Merry and Pippin are like little princelings, right? The heirs of the two greatest families of the Shire, right? Frodo is even weirder, right? Because he has not only the wealth of... Uh, of of Bilbo, right, handed down to him in Bag End, the house built by Bilbo's father, but he also has the heritage of weirdness, right, being taught Elvish and all these other things, right, those outlandish notions, right, that Bilbo has uh, been encouraging in his young nephew. So Frodo's even weirder. Sam... Grown up under the influence. Right. They're all kind of weird. None of them are truly mainstream hobbits. Um, Farmer Maggot, totally mainstream hobbit. I agree with you, Mike. The Cottons are pretty typical as well. Right. Um, When we meet Farmer Farmer, Cotton, we meet Farmer Cotton, we will get another example of like good, sturdy hobbitry. Right, your 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 sort of mainstream mainstream hobbit, but we haven't got him yet. Right, we don't get him till the return of the king, and his role in that way will be kind of similar, and that will be a fun point of comparison, actually. Right, thinking about the role of, of Farmer Cotton at the end compared to the role of Farmer Maggot here and the role that he plays uh, in this particular moment. But I agree, he's the other. The the, the Cottons are are I think the other family that are uh, sort of most stereotypical, most 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 mainline. Of all, of all the hobbits, Um, so let's um, let's let's keep going. Uh, It seemed plain that the farmer would tell them more if allowed to do it in his own time and fashion. So they all accepted the invitation. What about the dogs? Asked Frodo anxiously. The farmer laughed. They won't harm you, not unless I tell them to. Here, grip, fang, heel! He cried, "Heel, wolf!" To the relief of Frodo and Sam, the dogs walked away and let them go free. Pippin introduced the other two to the farmer. Mr. Frodo Baggins, he said. You may not remember him, but he used to live at Brandy Hall. At the name Baggins, the farmer started and gave Frodo a sharp glance. For a moment, Frodo thought that the memory of stolen mushrooms had been aroused and that the dogs would be told to see him off. Right, Frodo's, again, he can't help it. Right, He's got this picture of Farmer Maggot. Farmer Maggot, the ogre of his childhood, right? And as soon as he sees Farmer Maggot start, right, he has his own interpretation. <laughs> Mithalil says poor Frodo has PTSD. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, but but anyway, like he he has like his own his own narrative, right? The world that he grew up in when he was a kid, in which Farmer Maggot was the he was the big bad right and for a second it looks like that narrative is returning right oh my gosh i have walked down the slot to a dragon's den and now the dragon is going to eat me right um <laughs> So I see Mike's comment that he said when he was twelve he thought that heel was one of the dogs. <laughs> yeah. It's an easy mistake to make. Grip, fang, heel <laughs> Yeah, it's if he didn't repeat the command with Wolf, it, it would be it would be it would be even more confusing. But yeah, I can totally I can totally imagine as a kid uh making that mistake. Um <laughs> anyway. Um uh, I think I did, I think the only thing that protected me from that mistake, Mike, was I had, uh, before I read the Lord of the Rings, I had read a bunch of dog books, you know, like a, you know, of like the old yeller genre, basically. So I'd, uh, I'd already read about teaching dogs to heal. So I knew, uh, I, I knew that was a thing. It was in, it was in the forefront of my mind. Um, Anyway, so, so again, here's the narrative that Frodo has in mind. And, uh, and it looks like it's coming true, right? That, that he, he, he really is in that. World of his childhood imagination, that much smaller scale world, right? Farmer Maggot, not actually very dragonish, right? Some certain differences between him and a real dragon. But Farmer Maggot took him by the arm. Well, if that isn't queerer than ever, he exclaimed. Mr. Baggins, is it? Come inside. We must have a talk course, he's thinking about something entirely different. Um, And you notice the urgency of his hospitality. He will be revealing in a couple minutes that he did recognize Frodo's name, and perfectly well remembers beating him and seeing him off his land before, right? Um, But despite that, he doesn't even have a pause, right? He doesn't even, there's there's not even a flinch in his mind. Um, Farmer Maggot already has a wider view of things, right? And Jonas Gloss is saying it shows how close their escape really was. Yes, I suspect the come inside has a little bit of urgency to it, right? Whoa, come in and get if he in case he does return, I don't want him to see ya. Right? Yeah. I I I, I absolutely do get that too. That his urgency of to usher them inside is actually for his own uh, his own protection too. Um Yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> I agree, Milthalio, there is a certain amount of Realism here, uh, as she says, how Frodo's childhood experience looms much larger to him, uh, you know, than it does for the adult farmer who is chasing off a naughty kid. And Mithalio doubtless did it every weekend, right? Uh, you know, darn buckling teenagers coming over here and trying to steal my mushrooms. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> d- doubtless. But again, in the con- especially in the context, remember, just post-conversation with Gildar, right? One of the things... One of the things that Gildor invites Frodo to do in that part of the conversations we've alluded to so many times about, you know, not being able to fence the world, it's not your Shire, right? I never expected to meet them in in our own Shire, says Frodo, right? And Gildor's like, dude, it's not your own Shire, right? You need to change your perspective. You need to change the way you look at things. You're fooling yourself if you think that this is your Shire and that you're safe here, right, that nobody can get you here. Um, You can't fence the world out. Hobbits are deluding themselves in thinking of the Shire as just their world, right? He needs to broaden his perspective. His perspective is still not... and and, and we see an, his a, a flash here, right, of his narrow childhood perspective, right? That world in which Farmer Maggot loomed so large. Um, and Farmer Maggot immediately undermines it, right? The dragon you know, takes him by the arm and bids him come inside for his own safety, right? It's uh, a really anticlimactic dragon confrontation here. Um, But again, of course, we've seen Frodo's world um, expanding already, right? Just in this last chapter, we've seen Frodo's world expanding in some really scary ways, right? Um, And... That's why this sort of flashback to his childhood fear of Farmer Maggot is such an interesting sort of piece of perspective for me, right? That really emphasizes how much Frodo's world has already changed and how much it's, it's beginning to change, right? The way in which he now—how silly this looks, right? As soon as Farmer Maggot takes him by the arm and says, Come inside, we must have a talk, the whole thing just dissolves, right? That whole fantasy— Right that he'd been retaining since his child, you know that 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 which is kind of a fantasy world right in which farmer maggot is the you know the ogre who bites the heads off of children or rather has his dog bite the heads off of children then probably eats them for dinner at home um you know that world just just dissolves right away right um and again, what makes it happen the intervention of the outside world right uh something much worse than an ogre something kind of even worse than a dragon, maybe a little bit less apocalyptic in it's intervention in the shire, but still, uh, pretty bad, right? Namely a black riders intervention has totally changed that world and made it just vanish. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Oakwig says it's like the elves recognizing the non-coincidence of the meeting of the hobbits right after uh, they see the Black Rider. Yes, they re- uh, Gilda realizes in this meeting there is more than chance, right? Farmer Maggot doesn't have that kind of perspective, right? He's not like, ah, oh, I see it might be my destiny to assist you in your journey, right? That's not, obviously not Farmer Maggot's train of thought. Um, but clearly, any other issues that might be going on? I, 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 I kind of wonder... Uh, For me, a sort of a fun thought experiment. What would Farmer Maggot have done? How would Farmer Maggot have greeted them had um, the Black Rider not come, right? Had the three of them shown up and Farmer Maggot had no clue, right? Hadn't encountered a Black Rider and is just, he meets, you know, uh, Master Pippin and Master Pippin introduces uh, Frodo and Sam. And uh, uh, how would Farmer Maggot have acted? towards Frodo, right? Um, my theory, by the way, my theory is that uh, <laughs> Brunier says Heel would have eaten Frodo. <laughs> no, no, no. no. My, my, my theory is that he would have given him a hard time. I, I, I think he would have teased him, right? My theory is I think that Farmer Maggot would have pretended to be outraged and to and like and made it look like he was going to set his dogs on him, and then he would have laughed and and uh, uh, and be like, ah, "I'm just, I'm just giving you a hard time, right?" Um, I I totally think that he would have put Frodo on. That seems like a thing, a kind of thing that Farmer Maggot would do. It seems like a very Hobbit kind of thing to do. Again, given the exchange between Pippin and Farmer Maggot, I think that that's kind of, you know, he he seems to be that kind of guy. That's totally what I would expect Farmer Maggot to have done. But obviously he's not going there, right? Nothing like that's going to be happening since he is, uh, um, uh, since he's, you know, things have been very recontextualized. Um, all right, well, let's stop there for tonight. It's uh, field trip time. All right, we're going to, we're going to go on our field trip. And of course our field trip tonight is going to be to Bam Furlong. We're going to go see Farmer Maggot's place. Um, and, uh, what they did with Farmer Maggot's, uh, farm in the game. Uh, so we're going to, we're, we're going to do that next time. My goal, my goal is to, we're going to finish chapter four next week. Next week, we're going to finish chapter four. Um, I want to get all the way to Buckleberry Ferry uh, and see how the relationship with Farmer Maggot uh, unfolds and uh, looking at especially the way that this chapter ends, which I think is really neat. Um, again, Farmer uh, chapter four, pretty short. I think we're going to do it in three weeks. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, only about, uh, only about uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do an we'll we'll average of full three pages a day, you know, a class basically, um, so, um, you know, I don't really know, uh, 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 oh, Raven King, uh, what bam furlong means. I, mean, I know what furlong means, right? A furlong is an eighth of a mile, it's a traditional unit of measure. Um, but, uh, but I don't know the, the prefix bam, I don't know what to make of bam. Um, it sounds like it's one of those things which is, uh, you know, like the way that place names are often built out of like sort of bastardizations of other kinds of words. So it probably there was probably another word it wasn't actually BAM B A M, but another word that sounded like that that would be that could be applied to furlong and it became Bam Furlong over time. Um, it's a small village in the UK. Well, exactly. But the question is, where does that name come from? Tolkien loved this, by the way. He absolutely adored English place names and the derivations of English place names. He he uh, um, could talk about all of the names of the towns and stuff around him. I mean, for those of you who have read Farmer Giles of Ham, uh, one of his uh, children's stories, one of his Tolkien short stories, like the whole premise of Farmer Giles of Ham started uh was inspired by the name of a uh of a of a town. Uh a, a couple towns in Oxfordshire. Uh so uh, yeah, I mean he, he he absolutely loved that. So I'm sure I'm sure Tolkien would be able to explain it, but I don't know the answer. Um Yeah. Yeah. Um I I I, I don't know the answer, but I'm sure that JJ is incorrect. Okay. Anyway, so we're gonna we're gonna head out, so we're gonna to go to Mickle Delving again. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna gallop across the shire another time. Um, uh, so uh, Tony said, "Bam means beans, maybe." Okay, I mean that would make sense. They you could grow beans there. Uh, I could I could. That sounds like a kind of thing that could happen. Um, uh, but uh, okay, all right. Anyway, so let's. Uh, I'm just go, let's take the stable master over to Mickle Delving and from Mickle I I want to ride straight to if you don't meet up with me in Mickle delving, I want to ride straight to stock, so let's go to stock uh, and we'll go down into the marish from stock because I want to see how they how they present the land okay um, so if anybody needs assistance uh, in travel, I think that uh, Lily Rose here uh, can help you travel um, uh, so uh, but i'm I'm just going to take the stable so you guys want to come out with me out to the stable master. And we'll ride We'll ride out to back to the Shire and then out to Stock. We will not go into the Golden Perch, because you know if we go into the Golden Perch, we'll be there all night. So uh, uh, we will try to resist the allure of the best beer of the East Farthing, and we will uh, we'll head down to the Marish from Stuck. All right. So. Let's see. Um, a few interesting things about farm Maggot's Place in the Shire that I'm looking forward to looking at with you guys. All right. Out to Delving again. See, people in the Twitch chat are telling me not to be so hasty with chapter three. Well, you know, remember, hey, when we were doing chapter one, I thought three weeks was a lot, <laughs> right? And chapter four is legitimately short, it's only like 10 pages long. Okay, yeah, I won't take a horse from here. We can just ride from here. let we got some people coming in, right? Got some horses appearing here in the foreground. We'll just saddle up. Got my net steed here. We'll wait for a few more people to arrive. All right, good old and fast tunnely. Because you remember that uh, they will meet some tunnelies. In Bree, and Tunnelly is one of the names that they meet in Lee in Bree, which um, uh, the Shire hobbits consider natural names, right? Uh, like Sandheaver and Tunnelly. The botanical names are weird: Appledore and Thistlewood and Butterbur. They don't have names, you know, surnames like that uh, in the Shire. But Tunnelly is one of the normal names, so I like the fact that that uh, the stable master here in uh, in, Mich- in is named Tunnelly. All right. Let's head out towards Stock. So we're just going to be going straight down the East Road again. uh, As we have done many times before. Let's see, what time of day is it here in the Shire? Oh, it's dusk. Oh, nice, we're going to get a nice sunset here. We're already getting a nice sunset. Sky is all pink and lovely, and I'm running off the road because it's what you do when you're looking at the sky while riding a horse. Okay, (laughs) Matthew says you're guessing they were going to be taking three months on the Council of Elrond. Yeah, it's gonna be, it's gonna take a while. I mean, if you think about it, if if I'm if I average about three classes per every ten pages, then. Yeah, it's going to be a while in the Council of Elrond. The Council of Elrond's like 50, 60 pages. So, yeah, doing the math, uh, we're looking at like 50 to 20 weeks, something like that. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, but, yeah, there, there, there'll be plenty to talk about. Plenty to talk about the Council of Elrond. Um,. Alright, so we're coming over the... Oopsie, I'm turning myself. i got to use the other one. There we go. Now I can keep riding in a more or less street line while I'm looking off to the side. Okay. Aurorian <laughs> says... Uh, uh, no, sorry. Yeah. Aururon. Uh, says, uh, like Tolkien, we'll spend a year by Balin's tomb. Yeah, yeah. well, maybe. We'll see if we can get to there in a year. It's true, actually, that would be a really interesting sort of test, right? Which is going to take longer. Uh, for Tolkien to write The Lord of the Rings or for us to discuss it? <laughs> I'm not Sure. Oh, yes! Thank you, D-May. says I should point out, and she's absolutely right, uh, notice how the ring around my mini-map is blue here, right? Because we're in the Shire. And hope is high in the Shire. You're very low, so we've got... So notice, yes, we're at, we're at a hope rating of three, right? Hope has been kindled within me because, because I'm in the Shire, right? When you're in the Shire, hope is kindled within you, right? So notice you get... Uh, 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 an an advantage to your maximum morale you know your your health your hit points and uh a a, max, and a bonus to the to the to to your damage dealt right you're just you're full of spirit uh when you are uh when you're full of hope so that's why that's why that's why no why why is it blue like why why the color blue for hope baron oh well that's traditional um blue has been the color of hope since the middle ages that's uh that's uh that's uh long established. Um so uh so yeah, that's I, I don't know. I mean I don't know. Maybe they probably knew that, but uh I think it's uh, at least sort of fortuitous. Uh hope's always blue. Um whenever you meet uh you know, uh, an allegorical figure named Hope in a you know, medieval allegory, for instance, she's almost always wearing blue. Right? That's what you do when you're hope. Um uh, you know, if you're charity, right? If you're love, you wear red, right? It's what you do, unless you're topless. But that's only in the Fairy Queen. Um, Spencer was a little bit odd. Um, love, charity is topless in Hello. Spencer because she's always breastfeeding. She's very, she got kids, it's like infants, children hanging over her everywhere. So she's always she's in a constant state of breastfeeding her. Uh, her young ones. Anyway, sorry. Um, all right. So here we are in the village of stock. Let me get back on my horse here. Uh, the, uh, enticements of the golden perch. Are right in through there, right? That's the courtyard. We're not going to go in through the gate, though. You can see the you can see the sign. Uh, and notice, thinking back of what we wrote before. Uh, notice what you don't need to be in order to f- uh, in order to read the road signs and find out where the golden perch is. Literate, right? That's why pub signs in England still have pictures on them, right? Because you don't need to be literate in order to find out where the golden perch is. It's the one with the golden perch on the sign. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Okay. So here we are at the Golden Perch. So let, this is the village of Stock. And you'll notice even in the village here, it's agricultural, right? We got fields out behind the houses and stuff, right? We're not, this, these aren't like townhouses necessarily. The land slopes down. So we look, there's the river right there, uh, right across the way. That's Brandy Hall. Right. we can see Brandy Hall, a regular Warren by all accounts, right? You can see all, even from here and from this angle, which is not a great angle uh, on Brandy Hall, we can see all the windows and doors and gates and things all complex over there, right? And there's those Brandy Bucks. Look at that. It looks like they're having some kind of party over some kind of carnival or whatever. Big ol' tent there and some kind of booths and things over there. Those Bucklanders, right? Probably going to get all liquored up and come over here and try to steal our mushrooms or something like that. Um, so anyway, so there's Buckland Rutter, and then the land falls, right, and becomes wet. Now, the one thing that I find a little bit disappointing about the depiction of the Marish here uh, in the Shire is that there's, uh, there's no causeway, right? So the, the, the road is really just a road and not a causeway. We do get wetlands, right? Like you can see how, uh, how, how, how marshy the land is down here. It's not uh it's not a swamp exactly. It's not like the frogmoors, right? If you go around Frogmorton, that's more uh, you know completely swampy. But it's it's wet. You could see how if you wanted to make a road through land like this you'd need a causeway, right? You can't just be like, well, let's pave this puppy right now. You can't do that. Uh, put down as many cobblestones as you like. It's not going to do any good, right? When you're standing knee deep in the water. So if you want to have a road across land like this, you've got to pile up dirt, right? And you've got to build a foundation and raise the road up above the level of the water. And ideally above the level that the water gets to when it rains a lot uh, so that the, uh, the road can be up on the causeway, which is why not only Uh, Are you going to meet everybody that passes on the road because there's nowhere else to be that's dry? Uh, But also people are going to be able to see you from a mile from, you know, a long ways away. right. Because there you are traveling on the causeway, you know, like six feet up above the level of all the land around you, which is not only wet, but also very flat. Um, So. um, okay, so. Uh, So I I, I do think that the the land here in the Marish, they've gotten really well. Notice there's there's mushrooms, there's wild mushrooms everywhere. Uh, The the Marish is full of mushrooms. Uh, It kind of makes you wonder why anybody would break into Farmer Maggot's uh, farm to steal mushrooms when the mushrooms are this abundant, you could see why they'd come over here for mushrooms and trespass, right? Does he lay claim to every mushroom over here so that, like, you know, if you just come over here and start picking mushrooms, you're on his land and trespassing and taking his own personal mushrooms by default? Maybe. Um, uh, notice this is a this is a better view of uh, Brandy Hall from here, right? That's the ferry right there, by the way. Uh, so here, this is not part of it. Right, this is an Arnorian ruin. Right, we got these all over the place. You'll notice we just passed the stock tower, right? This is one of these big old watchtowers. We can see the ruins of another one. We looked at this before, didn't we? We can see the ruin of the other one up here. Again, I I, I really like the Arnorian ruins in the Shire. Um one of the things to me that it really emphasizes is again the extent of the um the extent of the shelteredness, sort of the inward-lookingness of the Shire, that they don't... To, to me, it really kind of sets off that idea. Again, Tolkien doesn't mention anything about Arnorian ruins uh, in the Shire, but it kind of makes sense. They would certainly be in Brie. We know they would be in Bree uh, because we were told that the Dunedain lived right in and around Bree. Um, so clearly, the the, the the ruins that we see, that we're going to see together in the Bree lands, um, they would, there were totally have been ruins there. They don't mention ruins in the Shire specifically, but although again we do get the standing stone like the uh, remember the sudden tree or the standing stone in the walking song you know so maybe we do get some ruins you might come across and discover in the middle of the bushes right somewhere um but uh, anyway so that over there is one of those arnorian ruins it's not this is not a hobbit construction um i love the little tower right there's a there's a tower Look how queer folks are over there in Buckland, right? They are so weird. They build towers on top of hills. I mean, who does that, right? Uh, I mean, do they if they eat dinner up there, they have to throw the dishes out the window afterwards. Sorry. Inside joke from uh, Return of the Shadow. But anyhow, uh, at Bingo and, and well, the Hobbits, whose names were totally different at the time, but the group of Hobbits in Chapter 3, going into the Marish, had this long debate about having uh, uh, houses versus holes and and, uh, having upstairs and how they would just, if they ate dinner upstairs, they would just throw the dirty dishes out the window. It was a hilarious conversation, uh, but a little bit odd under the circumstances. Anyway, like they had just been dodging black riders and they barely interrupted their conversation about, about throwing dishes out the window. Um, yeah, JJ says it's, it's perhaps the text that he's most disappointed didn't make it into the published text. Yeah, what the part about throwing dishes out the window specifically? Yeah, I bet. Anyway, so this is Buckleberry Ferry. Um, there's no ferry here. This bounder here tells us that uh, uh, I'm sure the Black Riders that caused all that trouble in Buckland are to blame for this ferry mischief. Yeah, the ferry's messed up, right? The ferry is uh, out of commission. Here in the in uh, in the game, but you can see this is where the ferry would have been. um, Probably, was it rowed or was it drawn? Well, we'll have to see when we when we get there. Um, But it's close enough that they could just draw it on ropes back and forth rather than rather than rowing it back and forth. I think it's probably drawn by ropes so it doesn't go downstream. Um, but anyway uh so this is where the ferry would be and you can see the ferry is the is the main right there is you know is is, is the main approach right there to 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 brandy hall um again I always think of that line from the party right a, a regular warren by all accounts and it does i i i i agree with you um it's uh looks like a great place for fishing you can just see the bridge right there's 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 the uh, uh uh, there's the Brandywine Bridge up to the north. Um, doesn't look quite as far around, right? It looks like it only take the Black Riders just a little bit of time to get up and across and back down. Um, but again, scale issue, right, with the game. Um, anyway, okay, so let's go back over now because we're not going to Buckland quite yet. That would be rash. Um, we have to finish Chapter Four first. so let's carry on down the road. And in addition to all the mushrooms that we are still seeing, you'll notice we've got a big old uh, granary here, right? Like a, like a, uh, storage silo, which suggests the, I don't know if I want to say wealth. That might not be quite fair, uh, but certainly suggests the, um, uh, fruitfulness. There we go. A farmer maggots farm. Now, one thing I, I, I want to draw your attention to. So here's Farmer Maggot's fields, right? Look at the. I really like how they've set this up in the game. So this is the road, right? We're following. We're following this is the road that comes down from stock. This is the main approach to Farmer Maggot's house. In other words, uh, this is where Farmer Maggot expected them to come. And you'll remember the first thing he says to them when he meets them, right? He's like, uh, you know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't see you. Okay, so let's, let's look at that passage again. It's again it right here, right? Uh, um uh, oh wait no sorry we we didn't get to that passage sorry we'll look at that next time where he says that they passed down his lane without him seeing them right and he's kind of saying like i know you came over my fields because i would have seen you if you came down the lane so the way they have it this is the lane to farmer maggot's house and it's completely exposed Look how if you follow the road like you're supposed to look how long of a warning farmer maggot has before you get there right he's like okay i see you coming i saw you coming down the hill and now you're coming up around the corner and now you're he's got his eyes on you the whole way right until you come in this is the front entrance and and i love farmer maggot's house right Nice house. I think they do Farmer Maggot's house really wonderfully. Look how it's... um, I think it's an excellent combination on the one hand. This is a a nice house. A big house. Um, Nice hobbit door. Painted a very attractive purple, I would add. Uh, Windows. This big light window up here, right? Does he have a second story? Maybe he has a second story. Anyway, it's very... It's very... uh, um, uh, uh, very airy and roomy if it's not, if it doesn't have a top story. Right. Um, so it's not huge. This isn't a mansion. Uh, this isn't, uh, uh, this isn't house of the great. It's a farmhouse, right? But it's a very nice, solid, comfortable farmhouse. We're told, of course, that people in the Marish went in for houses. The ground is way too, um, is way too, uh, um, wet to dig holes here, right? So you see not only does he have a house above the ground, but he has this whole raised stone foundation, right? Because Farmer Maggot doesn't want, or rather, I I presume Mrs. Maggot uh, especially doesn't want, you know, the floors all flooded with water all the time. Uh, So, and if we look around the back, we can see, I love the, the, the thatched roof, right? Not an expensive slate roof, but not a turf roof either, right? This is, uh, uh, this is high quality, spacious, but peasant house, right? Um, so okay. What else? What else do we so? So this is where they would have been. They would have been having this conversation with Farmer Maggot right here at his gate, right at the entrance uh, where the lane enters into his house. Um, remember, Pippin says, "Let's get back onto the lane, and then we we shan't be trespassing." They had gotten too far to the south and had to veer north back towards the, uh, so they came, you can't really get there in the game, uh, because this is all, this is, we're at the the southern edge, Again, if we look at here, this, uh, this line of hills here represents where the map ends, right, in the game world, uh, so you can't really, you can't really come all the way up from the south, you can't get any further south than this, um, but they came up from the south across his fields, and then got into the lane quick so that they won't be trespassing, and they came in as if they had come uh, uh, by the road the way they were meant to in the first place. Um, okay, so and so farmer, but uh, Bem Furlong is also expansive. We've got we've got a, a, a stable here, bunches of outbuildings, right? Uh, where we've got the we've got those bar- I don't know what do you keep, what's in the barrels. Hang on i got to dismount here. Not the closed barrels. What's in these barrels? Why are they under here? Oh! Aha! See what it is? Pipeweed, I'll wager. Gotta be. Yeah. Barrels of pipeweed. Okay. Probably somewhere in the drying process, I would imagine. What do we have over here? What do we have over here? It's uh huh what is this meat being cured or salted smoked maybe that hook there suggests this is probably meat I don't know the green looks a little odd something's being treated here, I suppose it could be. Oh, Lady Gum thinks this is drying pipeweed too. This is another stage in the pipeweed process. That's possible. Why some is green and some is brown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good theory. I thought it might be meat, but no, that's not going to be meat. You're right. That's probably pipeweed too. So we see him drying pipeweed in several stages. We got this the, this drying out here, and then being put in the barrels over here. Okay, all right. Got the whole production. There's just chickens, right? Okay, got some poultry going on. What's over here? Ah, now we're getting like the root vegetables, right? Those are probably turnips, maybe taters in there, right? Oh, look at them. We've got artichokes and radishes. What is that? What is that? Leeks, probably leeks. Sacks of potatoes, right? Uh, pot, the pots of honey, maybe up there. I bet does they have bees. I didn't see any bees, but maybe he's got bees. Maybe he trades for honey. Could do, right? So notice how diversified his farm is, right? He's growing his own. So you know they have Bam Furlong as this almost completely self-sustaining place, right? They've they've grown their own vegetables. They grow their own pipeweed. They've got uh, they've got chickens. They've got sheep, right? So they've got wool. Notice they don't have a big flock of sheep. Probably don't raise the sheep for meat. I mean, they only seem to have the two sheep. At least the only only the two here. Uh, but that would be enough for wool. Right. So if you're if you're raising the sheep for fiber. And then, of course, over here, we have the mushroom houses. Right. So we got these little burlap greenhouses going on where they grow the real prized mushrooms. And I'm thinking this is totally if you're a if you're a a Brandy Hall teenager, this is where you're going. Right. You know, like those all those mushrooms out there. I mean, just around, go, all you got to do is go around the corner, right? What do you see? Mushrooms right there over the fence, right? Everywhere outside his land, mushrooms as far as the eye can see. But no, if you're a, a buckling teenager, right, you're totally wanting to steal the big prize, right? You're going to sneak in here. Look at those puppies. Would you just look, right? Uh, uh, so here's uh, 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 ke- Kelada or, or Kelava. Do you pronounce it with a double D? Anyway, there's Kelada, right? The, 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 she's human, I think she's human, right? Look at this. These are knee-high to a human being, these mushrooms. Look how big they are! And for a hobbit, right? Let's see, who's this? Ooh. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce your name. But anyway, if you look at this hobbit last next to them, it's like, like thigh-high on a hobbit, these mushrooms. The, the, the caps of these mushrooms are bigger than her head! So I mean, right? You're a hobbit. You're living nearby here. This is where you're coming into his special gar- greenhouses, right? Well, sort of greenhouses, anyway. But uh, these these because uh, uh, of course you want to grow mushrooms in a shady place. You don't you don't you don't want the light on the mushrooms. So you create the shade uh, just to just to do that. Hang on, we didn't inspect this building over here. What's he got over here? Oh, it's stable, right? He's got his horses over there, of course. Of course. And over here, now, of course, we haven't met Farmer Maggot himself or his dogs. Now, Wolf is his biggest dog. Is that Wolf asleep over there? That's Fang. That's Wolf who was walking around, right? Yeah, that's Wolf. He's doing the rounds. Yeah, there he comes. So this is is Grip, and there's Fang sleeping. And here is Farmer Maggot himself. Now, let's look at Farmer Maggot. Okay, he is, you know, his clothes are, you know, he's plain. But his jacket seems to be a pretty good quality. Um, notice he's got, uh, his jacket is done up with with frogs, not with buttons. He doesn't have buttons, so he doesn't have... Remember the, um, uh, the brass buttons on Bilbo's waistcoat that he was very proud of? And the, how at the end of... Um, um at the end of the um the book he's he's upgraded to gold buttons on his waistcoat right um farmer Maggot doesn't have buttons on his waistcoat he's not he's not so posh as that he's got he's got he's got frogs you know he's got the um yeah you can see them you can see them there on his on his uh on his coat but there's decorations on his collar right and he's got a A nice undershirt there. Workaday pants, but a nice shiny belt buckle. Right? I like it. And he's his title, respected farmer. Right? And this is his son, right? Hammy. Hammy Maggot. That's a great name. Of course, it's hard to have a good first name. I mean, any first name you have is going to be kind of undermined by your last name, Maggot. It's really hard to do that. But Mithaliel, you're absolutely right. The dogs are absolutely enormous. Right? I mean, look at uh, especially especially to a hobbit I mean uh you know you have one of the hobbits come over and stand next to stand right next to a grip over here right I mean that that there there it is look at that look at that the dog is higher than the hobbits right um uh, Enormous, yet says, no wonder Frodo was terrified. Uh, yeah, yeah, There, these, these dogs are, these are definitely ferocious dogs designed, uh, designed to be able to, 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 to kill things, to kill major. Th- you know, if there are any predators that come in, any wolves that come in, they're probably wolfhounds, right? Um, uh, he wouldn't keep hounds like foxhounds or something like that. Not Farmer Maggot. He would keep, um, he would keep, uh, 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 something like wolfhounds, right? So when he says he keeps ferocious dogs, it's not just, you know, these aren't like poodles with a bad temperament, right? These are these are so I I I love their treatment of the dogs. I think it's uh uh it really it really captures things very well. Yeah. So imagine being young Frodo um uh chased all the way from here to the ferry uh by the uh uh by those dogs. So anyway, I I really like the fact that the um the the way that the the way that things are set up, um, in the in the game world. Oh, hang on! Did I hit that stupid target toggle again. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Um. The I hate it when I accidentally hit that command. All right. Um. So I, I love the, the way that the game world has it set up. Again, you can see how he would be able to see it. Anybody coming. Again, from his vantage point where he's standing here, there's the road, right? And you can see, I can see you coming all the way down from stock and turning the corner down the lane and come right. And he's got all kinds of time to mosey around the corner of the house and meet you out in front if he sees you coming. Um, but of course, it's totally tempting to trespass, right? I mean, from and no, no matter what direction you come to Farmer Maggot from, you know, it's always like the most direct way to go right across his fields. Um. Yeah, it's funny. Gravity's saying he's surprised there isn't dread standing this close to the dogs. Right? I, it would be hilarious if hobbits got dread in Farmer Maggot's uh, uh, farmyard. I I think that would be awesome. Um. But uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that that would be cool. Anyway. Okay. So I and and, and the the other. Observation that I would make about Farmer Maggot's uh, farm, you know, about Bam Furlong in the game, it's the only one like, in the entire marriage. Again, it's a scale thing, right? Um, there are no other farmers. There are no other farms in the marriage. It's just this one, right? Uh, so you clearly get the idea Farmer Maggot's an important person. Right. Um, he is the representative farmer. And that again, to me is really fascinating because I think that, you know, in the book, Farmer Maggot is, is a real representative, right? I mean, in meeting Farmer Maggot, and we'll, we'll look at this a little bit more next week when we see the rest of their exchange and and the meal that they share with them and stuff. Um, their time with Farmer Maggot, it's one of the only times we're ever going to see that slice of normal Hobbit life, right? uh farmer maggot really is kind of a you know a representative in that way and he is the sole representative of Marish farming here in uh here in the game which again i think is kind of fun all right well i should let you go we're late now even though we started late uh so thanks very much everybody um uh next week we'll be back normal time Um, I think, oh no, I'm forgetting. I think we're on Landreval next week. I'm missing, uh, Trish couldn't be here today, so I'm totally lost without her. That's why I started late too, by the way, because I didn't have Trish, and so I'm like trying to figure out how to turn people's mics on and stuff. Uh, you know, I can figure out my own stuff, but I'm kind of helpless, so, um... Anyway, and I, so I don't remember I don't have Trish here to remind me of which server we're doing next. There is a calendar though. I um, uh, sure I should mention this. Again, if you go to the discussion board, if you go to, to lotro.mythguard.org, um, and you click on Calendar as one of the options. and so we do try to keep that updated as we, we we set the schedule at least a few weeks in advance. and you can there see if you want some warning about when we're going to shift to a to a Europe friendly week. Uh, you should be able to see that coming for a few weeks in advance. But we're going to be at 9:30 uh, for the rest of May. Uh, the calendar says TBD through most of June, but I think we're I, so I think we're going to be on Landerville next week. Is what I is what I seem to remember. But we'll we'll send out a correction of that if I turn out to be wrong. Uh, so anyway, thanks very much everybody for joining me today. Thanks for everybody for coming to who came to Bam Furlong with me here tonight. And I look forward to our uh, our 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 finishing up of chapter four next week. So thanks very much. Good to see you all again. And I'll see you again next week. Bye now.